0: Morning, Bethel. If you could turn in your Bibles to Isaiah twenty-eight, that's where our scripture reading is found this morning. That's actually our passage um, that we're gonna study together this morning as well. If you are using the Pew Bible, you can find that passage on page five eighty-eight. Five eighty-eight. Chapter 28 of Isaiah, and we're actually going to read that whole chapter, and then I will pray and we'll dive in. So, if you wouldn't mind standing in honor of God's word and following along as I read, Isaiah 28. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley. Will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink, they're swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, from those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to, his, to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you've said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. From morning by morning, it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message." For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his, to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have made a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land, "'Give ear and hear my voice. "'Give attention and hear my speech. "'Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? "'Does he continually open and harrow his ground? "'When he has leveled its surface, "'does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, "'and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place, "'and emmer as the border? "'For he is rightly instructed. "'His God teaches him. "'Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, "'nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. "'But dill is beaten out with a stick "'and cumin with a rod.' Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so even as I read that passage, you've got to be honest. I mean, this is a weird chapter. So what in the world are we doing spending time studying Isaiah 28? I mean, what an obscure passage in the midst of a big, confusing Old Testament book that's like 2,700 years old. Well, first, if you're new or newer, we've actually been studying through the book of Isaiah since last fall um, with some planned breaks. So we've actually only been in Isaiah about 20 weeks. Um, And if you want to catch up, those are online. But here's the real issue, is we have this crazy belief here at Bethel. Um, It goes something like this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it's easy to go to the passages that are really maybe a bit more clear immediately, but it's good for us to have a good balanced diet from all over the Bible because it's all profitable. And so if I were to pick the passage, I probably wouldn't pick this passage. But you know what? I would miss out. We would miss out on the grace and the truth. God didn't put this in the Bible by accident. It's all profitable. So there's a lot of grace and truth for us in here this morning and certainly in the book of Isaiah. Now, yes, there's lots of foreign words and and history and so forth, Um, in Isaiah, just like Shakespeare is foreign to most of us in this room because he lived, you know, several hundred years ago and he spoke like people spoke several hundred years ago. So we need a little orientation or how about this to make it even more kind of contemporary because some of you might still not have real great connotations with Shakespeare, um, so how many times have you sat down or somebody else sat down in the middle of a movie that you were watching and what do they do? They ask those annoying questions. I want to watch this. Like, oh, who's that? What, wait, what happened? You need to get caught up, right? Well, if you want to know the storyline of the Bible, you've got to know the Old Testament. It's like the foundation upon which the New Testament is built. And Isaiah is one of the central books of the Old Testament. So the New Testament makes much of Isaiah, lots of quotes and allusions. If you scratch New Testament texts, oftentimes there's Old Testament texts like Isaiah underneath. And as odd as 28 sounded when we read it, the New Testament actually makes a fair amount of this obscure passage. So it must be important. So let's find out why, okay? Now, We haven't been in Isaiah since early July. We had this series on the Holy Spirit, so a little bit of review is in order. Uh, I'll try to do it quick. So the first 12 chapters of Isaiah is the first major section of the book. Chapters 1 to 5 show how bad the situation was in Isaiah's time. He lived from 740 to 680. That was roughly his ministry time there um, in the southern kingdom of Judah. Lots of rebellion, lots of idolatry, and these were supposed to be God's people. Chapter 6 is his call where he encounters the Lord and he sees how unholy he is and how holy the Lord is and how he needs atonement. And that's exactly what he receives. And then he's commissioned, here am I, send me. So what happened to Isaiah is actually what needs to happen to all of the people of God. He's like a a little picture of what needs to happen to all of the people. They need to be aware of their sinfulness in seeing the glory of God, and they need to be aware of their need for atonement and cleansing so that they can actually fulfill their purpose, their mission as God's people. So chapters 7 to 12 unpack the judgment that's coming, but God does it in such a way that shows that the judgment's not the last word. The Lord has grace planned for his people, and so this section is, is a message of grace and hope on the far side of judgment, okay? And it's centered around prophecies of this Messiah to come. To us a child is born, a son is given, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, okay? The second major section, 13 to 27, those chapters, and for the most part, those chapters are filled with prophetic words of judgment against the surrounding nations, kind of the main nations of the world at that time. And you know what? These nations are filled with pride and defiance toward God, and he's going to judge them. So it's not a pretty picture. But the truth is that God opposes the proud. It's just true, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. So this isn't just ancient history. It's a revelation of reality. Every part of God's word is a revelation of reality, the character of God, how he works in history and in our lives. Just like the well-worn proverb, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, learning this history is really helpful for us so that we don't fall into the same ditches that they did. So this next major section that we're going to enter into today runs from chapter 28 to 39. Okay, so here's, here's what's going on in simple terms. Assyria was the superpower at the time, and they were threatening Judah. That's where Isaiah lived. That's who he was a prophet to. So Judah is freaking out, looking for some help. They need to make an alliance so that they can protect themselves from this oncoming threat. But the leaders don't look to the Lord. Instead, they look to Egypt to be their savior, which don't miss the irony. You know, they were enslaved to Egypt in history. You get that? So let's make the dynamic really simple. Let's say that you're getting bullied by a guy named Rudy. I pick Rudy because he was the guy that bullied me when I was in uh, middle school. I'll tell you that story another time. Um, So you're getting bullied by Rudy. You look around for help. Joey looks like a pretty tough guy. He's not exactly an angel himself. Maybe he can take on Rudy. So you offer to give your lunch money to Joey for a month if he'll protect you from Rudy. Okay, Joey agrees. He likes lunch money. Joey toes up to Rudy on your behalf. Rudy (laughs) beats him up. And let's say Rudy finds out you hired Joey. How's that going to go for you? That's not going to help matters. Okay? Now, by the way, if we were to try to apply this a little broader as far as the the, uh, parable, imagine all the while that your dad is an eighth degree black belt and he's the recess monitor and you never talk to him. How about let's make it even a little more contemporary. Let's say you're getting bullied, with that in quotes, by sleeplessness and anxiety because of the threat of financial ruin. And you look around for help. So you got some options here, the lottery, gambling, cheating on your taxes, Stealing in some common ways at work that usually don't go under the name of stealing. Workaholism. So those might seem like fairly strong contenders toward fending off your financial fears. But you know what? You're still also on edge. You can't sleep. So alcohol looks pretty strong. Those pills look pretty strong. Maybe they can take anxiety in a fight. So you offer yourself to them for a while to see if, if they'll protect you from anxiety. So they toe up, and it seems to win for a few weeks, but they keep wanting more, a higher payment for their services, and still anxiety breaks through to you. All the while, your Heavenly Father is wanting you to cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. Or, or let's say you fear the threat of losing face with certain people. So you make an alliance, a foolish alliance, with deception. You lie to keep up appearances. Do we do this? You spin to ensure the right people are still impressed with you, still respect you, still trust you. Rely on deception so that people still trust you. Do you see how we bow to, we make a sacrifice to, we rely on some apparent power in order to deliver us from our trouble and our threats? So what other false alliances do we tend to make? This passage would be applicable to all of them, okay? So keep that kind of thing in mind. This is Yes, it's an ancient text, but it has very relevant, applicable stuff for us, truth for us in our lives. So the title of the series in Isaiah is God Saves. That's what Isaiah's name means. And that's what the book is all about. And God saving us is not just a once-and-done, pray a prayer, walk the aisle. God is a deliverer. He's always the Savior we can trust in to rescue us from our stupid selves, to rescue us from our fear, our anxiety, and our most challenging troubles. Okay, so this is very relevant stuff. But again, we're sitting down in the middle of the movie, as it were. Okay, so don't worry. I won't be annoyed if you ask the questions, you know. So let's get caught up on the story. First six verses tell, tell us quite a bit about what's going on, but it's more than just a history lesson. It shows us that there are really only two crowns that people pursue. Did you notice that? That the term crown comes up a couple times. So the question is, are you after the baubles of the world, like the trinket crowns of the world, or the beauty of the Lord, like the real crown? Look at verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. So that's referring to the northern kingdom. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom, and so he's looking up north, and he's directing the southern kingdom people's attention up north and saying, the proud crown, look at it, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. So that's referring to Samaria, the capital of the southern kingdom. That's where it was situated. It's so beautiful. It's so rich and fertile and so drunk and fading fast. It looked so great, but it's fading fast. Verse 2, behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong. They would know who that was. That's Assyria, the superpower at the time, coming to threaten the northern kingdom. Because, hey, if you're rich and we're stronger than you, we're going to take your lunch money. (laughs) We're going to come and just wipe you out so we can have what you have. And the Lord is actually using that to judge the northern kingdom. Like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand. Their pride, their rejection of the Lord is going to be judged here. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. So again, Isaiah's pointing their attention north. And the point is, he's saying to the people in Judah, look what's going to happen to your northern neighbors. Look and learn. That's how easy it will be for Issyria to wipe out your northern neighbors. A few bites and they're gone. Just like a fig. How big is a fig? It's like that big. It's like two bites. Gone. You're hungry. You're walking along. First ripe fig. You know, pop it in. Maybe one bite if you've got a big mouth. So if you are living for earthly crowns, just like they were, rejecting God as their king, you will be just as vulnerable as they were. That's the point. But that's not the only crown option. There's another crown. Look at verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So Isaiah is saying to his people, you know the glory of Samaria? It's going to be wiped out in the blink of an eye. All that human glory and gain that they strive for, what's it going to be then? All the puffed-up wannabe kings, those who proudly seek the crowns of this world, they're going to be brought low and ashamed. But the humble believers, the remnant is what he calls them here, those who trust in the Lord, even if they're humiliated, marginalized, mocked in their own you know in the short run they are going to be crowned with glory that will never fade that is really relevant Jesus once asked a question and went like this very sobering question he said how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only god So ask yourself, what makes you feel important? Where does your sense of worth and value come from? Where do you want your honor to come from? What is your crown? Again, to use that image. What will your crown be? What are you living for? Are you living for the praise and approval of other people? Or the crown of the Lord is for the humble who recognize that they are sinners in need of a Savior, that Jesus died for them, and, oh man, is this even, this is too good to be true. He took my pride and rebellion on the cross for me so that I could be lifted up and made a son or daughter of the King of Kings? Do you see that crown? Which one do you want? Do you want the fading crown of this world or do you want the the crown that comes by grace alone through faith in Jesus as you become a son or daughter of the king? No condemnation. This is my beloved son or daughter. In him, her, I'm well pleased. And then you live for him, not for the praise and approval of people. And at the end he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You say, yes, that's what I want. So the Lord of hosts will crown his believing people with this beautiful crown of glory. Listen to this quote by Malcolm Muggridge. He was a journalist in the 20th century. He said, can this really be what life is about, as the media insist? This interminable soap opera... Going on from century to century, from era to era, whose old discarded sets and props litter the earth. Surely not. Was it to provide a location for so repetitive and vulgar a performance that the universe was created and man came into existence? I can't believe it. If this were all, then the cynics, the hedonists, and the suicides would be right. Right? The most we can hope for from life is some passing amusement, some gratification of our senses, and death. But it's not all. As Christians, we know that here we have no continuing city, that crowns roll in the dust, and every earthly kingdom must sometimes flounder, sometime flounder. Whereas we acknowledge a king men did not crown and cannot dethrone as we are citizens of a city of God, they did not build and cannot destroy. Yes! I mean, do you realize how, like, this whole king and kingdom crown thing might, might seem like it's, I don't know what you're talking about. There are so many teenagers that are, like, so wrapped up in getting a certain level on a video game. Could be crowned with getting on the leaderboard. Being impressive in your, like, with your car. I'm the man. Like, there's just so many different ways this gets worked out. We might not call it a crown, but it is. Who do you get your validation, your worth from? We have, if you're a Christian, we have a king men didn't crown and cannot dethrone. We are citizens of a city of God they did not build and cannot destroy. Everything else is just going to roll in the dust. So let's live all out for that king, for that kingdom. Let's not try to sit on the fence as if having your cake and eating it too is somehow better. It's not. Don't be wishy-washy and really live for the, praise, the, the, the approval and praise of people and just give lip service to God's approval let's just throw our fool's gold crowns in the dirt at the feet of King Jesus and crown him with many crowns. And let's believe that he made us a kingdom of priests who one day reign with him. I mean, if that's our future, we don't have to fight the meaningless king of the hill battles for all these little piles of dirt on this earth. I mean, that's what we're doing. I don't care if you're like Steve Jobs trying to... I know he's dead. Trying to win the uh, technological King of the Hill battle. Oh, that's so impressive. It's a little pile of dirt. What's that helping him now? All the crowns will very soon roll in the mud and be shown for the fool's gold that they are. But the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of true glory and beauty comes from pouring contempt on our pride and bowing before King Jesus. And that crown will never perish, never fade, never be taken away. So the leaders in Isaiah's times, they didn't choose their crowns wisely. They were bobbleheads, these leaders, with baubles on their heads, like costume jewelry. And not only that, but in their arrogance, the wisdom of God's word sounded like silly talk to them. Okay, this middle section could just be like so confusing, but it's actually fairly simple if you understand some of what's going on at the time. So let's look at point number two, what does the word of God sound like to you? So he's speaking to the leaders in Judah, he's speaking of them, and he says, these also, so remember he was pointing north, now he's looking south and saying, you guys are in the same boat. They reel with wine, they stagger with strong drink. The priest and prophet reel with strong drink, they're swallowed by wine. Okay? They, they can't give judgment, they're thrown up all over the place. This is not a pretty picture. They're totally controlled by the wrong things. Now, verse 9 could just be hopelessly confusing, but notice the quotes. This is these drunken leaders mocking Isaiah and the word of the Lord. Look at it there in verse 9. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the, from the milk, those taken from the breast. He's going to have to explain it to babies. For what he says is just like baby talk. So here's this precept upon people. What, what in the world is that all about? Basically, it's most likely like a sing-songy sort of thing for kids. <laughs> here's what it is in Hebrew. Sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav. You hear it? Gucci, Gucci, goo, Gucci, Gucci, goo. That's what they're doing to Isaiah. They're saying, That's your message, Isaiah. You're such a fool. All you do is go around just baby talk. We're too sophisticated for the word of the Lord. So they use baby talk to mock his message. But the point here is that their mockery is going to return on their heads, it's going to be poetic justice. God's going to frustrate the wisdom of the wise. Look at verse 11. For by people of strange lips, NIV has a great translation here, very well then, by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, that's the Assyrians, the Lord will speak to the people. This is sarcastic. This is judgment. They're coming. They speak a different language from you. And when they come in knocking, you're not going to understand what they're saying. It's going to sound like gobbledygook to you. And it's precisely because you called my word gobbledygook. Do you get it? Verse 12. So, verse 11. The Lord will speak to this people. The people to whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary. This is repose. That was the message. It wasn't like super complicated. It wasn't like bad news. He's trying to lead them to rest. And they were sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, Isaiah, you're an idiot. Shut up. Just get out of here. They wouldn't hear. They didn't reject a harsh word from the Lord. They rejected rest and repose. And so the word of the Lord will be to them, Kavakov, you know this baby talk thing, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So here's what this means. Syria's coming. They're going to conquer. What happens when you get conquered? You hear your captors jabbering in a language that sounds like you don't get it. It's going to sound like silly talk, but it's the sound of judgment. They're coming against you because you wouldn't listen to the Lord. God will not be mocked. Their mockery of the word of the Lord will come back on their own heads. And this is not just like a relic of history. This is a danger in any generation. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to so many. To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Where's the one who is wise? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So here's the point for us. If when you hear the word of the Lord, especially Especially in the midst of trials and in the face of serious threats. If you hear the word of the Lord and it sounds like blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Like, I know, I know, I know, but this is so complicated. You have no idea what I'm going through. That's really dangerous. It's just not realistic enough. It's not strong enough. It's not sophisticated enough. And especially when other so called wisdom of the world seems weightier and more insightful, more helpful, whether that's the self help drivel or the faux spirituality of Oprah. Have you ever been in that boat where Oprah seems more insightful than God in His Word? or the health wealth cotton candy of Joel Osteen, or whatever guru du jour there is, if their wisdom hits your ears with weight, and the wisdom, it was in quotes, did you see that, Um, hits your ears with weight, and the word of God seems weightless, then listen to how Isaiah exhorts his hearers down in verse 22. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong." You're going to be even more enslaved. So listen. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. So this warning is serious, but it's loving. God doesn't want us to build our house on the sand. He wants us to build it on the rock of his word. So look back at verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Now again, I, I hope that this doesn't, uh, this doesn't describe any of us. Hopefully we're not scoffing at the word of the Lord, but you might recognize seeds of that in your heart, especially as you've suffered in the past. You can sometimes just stiff arm the word of the Lord. So this is a, a word for us. There might be some of you that do think the Bible's just a bunch of gobbledygook and Jesus and the cross and all that. And this is a sober warning. So therefore hear the word of the Lord you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem because you've said we've made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have an agreement when the overwhelming whip passes through it will not come to us for we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter <laughs> Do you think that's what they really said? That's not how they would have said it. They would have said we've made a covenant with life. We we made a really good political alliance and we saved our <laughs> we saved ourselves, okay? Sometimes you don't say the words that come to your mind. Um, so it's almost like have you ever heard that, Have you ever seen one of these things where there's like a politician that's speaking and then they kind of mute his voice and they, they put a voice over and they say what he really says, you know, because of what happens, what comes out, you know, in the, the coming weeks? That's the situation here. They would have said, oh, we we made such a wise move here. We're going to save our our tails. Oh, no, you made a covenant with death. You made an agreement with the grave. When the overwhelming whip passes through Assyria, oh, it won't come to us because we're protected inside of our refuge of Lot. No, that's what it is. It's a false shelter. So they basically signed their death warrant. There's no other salvation than in the Lord. Look at verse 17. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. That happened in history. And it's a warning for us if we stick our fingers in our ears to the word of God. So they thought they were making a covenant with life, and they thought they were staying out of the grave, by their agreement with Egypt. They, they wanted to avoid the overwhelming scourge of Assyria by doing what they did. Instead, they got the opposite. Assyria, you know what happened in history? Assyria wiped out Egypt, just like Rudy and Joey, okay? And their refuge of lies, refuge of lies was swept away. The same thing can happen to us. Verse 20, look at this. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on. And the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. That seems like, what in the world are they talking? Well, you know what? We say, you made your bed, now lie in it. It's the same thing. We actually have a similar idiom. So you rejected the rest, the repose that God had offered. Now here's your bed, and you've got to sleep in it. You look to Egypt to be your security blanket. Have you ever tried to pull a blanket? It drives me nuts. It's cold, and we have little kids, so we have little blankets. And there have been a few times where I put one of the blankets on, and it like, I'm like hoping it's stretchy enough and I can hook my toe around the end and stretch it. Like, drive you nuts. Well, that's what they are. It's just too narrow. It's not going to cover you. Verse 21, for the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the Valley of Gibeon. These What? What are you talking about? Well, you could easily, if you have a study Bible or cross-reference, you look back and go, oh, the Lord broke through like a flood for David and rescued him from his enemies. And then the Valley of Gibeon, he defeated Israel's enemies by raining down hailstones in Joshua 10. So these were actions for his people to deliver them against their enemies. But here's the the twist. Now, since his so-called people are stubbornly choosing to be his enemies by sticking their fingers in their ears, they're going to face judgment. God's going to be against them rather than for them. He's going to be roused to do his work, verse 21. Strange is his deed, to work his work, alien is his work. In other words, God's going to have to fight against his own people, at least those who should have been his people. So here's the bottom line. When you hear the Bible, especially in the face of terrible threats, what do you hear? Do you hear it as the refuge that it is, the help? the hope, the promises, or do you hear blah, blah, blah? Come on. We got to be practical here. Isaiah 28, are you kidding me? I need answers. No. Again, verse 22. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear, hear my voice, give attention, and hear my speech. If you reject The word of God for some other message. You're building your life on a lie. You're making lies your refuge from the storm. So application, in a sense, is really simple. Just like Jesus said, don't build your life on the sand. When the storm comes, your house is just going to be knocked out. Build it on the rock. And speaking of rocks, did you notice the verse we skipped over? It's at the center of this chapter in more than one way. He is the rock that we've got to build our lives on. Mark mentioned it as we sung and as we looked at those texts from 1 Peter and 1 Corinthians 3. Jesus is that rock. This text is picked up multiple times in the New Testament referring to Jesus. Look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, which is a way to say the new city of God as opposed to the city of man, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So multiple times picked up in the New Testament, rightly so, because Jesus is that precious cornerstone. He's the only sure foundation for our lives. And if you reject him and try to find a crown somewhere else, you will scramble all your life in vain trying to find some footing some solid ground. And when you face your death and the judgment of God, you will be in an inconsolable panic. You'll be shaken to the core with no recourse. That's what in haste means. Anxious, scrambling, freaking out, looking for something to hang on to. But if you listen, listen to the word of God, You stop trying to make yourself a crown, and you bow before the only one who is the true king, who deserves that crown. And you're glad that he offers pardon for your insurrection, like we've all wanted our kingdom to come on earth, as it is in our own mind. We want to be king. We want to be in charge. And that is rebellion against the king of kings but the gospel says that he came and died so that pardon could be offered for our insurrection. I mean, you just can't believe that no condemnation could be offered to, to rebels like us. So whoever believes in him, believes in Jesus, won't be in haste, not scrambling to other faux saviors like we talked about at the beginning. Things that we run to to rescue us from our Threats. And then when we die and face judgment, we're not going to be shaken. We're not going to be disappointed. We're going to be delighted. (laughs) Because the same one who said when we became Christians, pardoned, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, at your conversion, he's going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. How about that for a crown and glory that you can build your life on? How about that for a sure foundation, for some stability? So what does that sound like to you? Does that sound like good news? (laughs) I hope so. Or does it sound like a fairy tale, boring, unreal, unconvincing? I mean, if it sounds like anything other than the best news in the world, then you ought to pray that God would dig the mud of this world out of your ears so that you can hear that he has good news for you today. And he wants you to hear it as good news. Don't scoff. Listen, give ear to what I'm saying. I've got a real crown for you, a lasting one that can be yours. I don't want you to settle for two-bit trinket crowns that you get at the dollar store. That's what the best crowns of this world. You could be Olympic gold medalist. It's just going to be rolling in the mud eventually. I don't want you to settle for two-bit trinket crowns, baubles, instead of this glorious eternal crown and an eternal rock beneath your feet. So, what are we thinking? Because even if you are a Christian, we oftentimes run after the baubles. We, we run off to the dollar store cheap crowns and we go after those things what are we thinking when we do that what do we need to hear when we do that well we need to hear that the lord is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom point number three the last several verses here look at verse 23 give ear hear my voice give attention hear my speech and then he he gives you this parable of a farmer and it's really weird because how many farmers are in the room like actively farming right now okay So we need to ask some questions because we just sat down and we're pretty disoriented. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? So even us non-farmers, we're not too dumb for this, okay? This is pretty clear. Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he's leveled its surface, does he not sow the seed? Why does he do that? Well, because... He's rightly instructed. God teaches him. I mean, come on, dill isn't threshed with a threshing sledge. A threshing sledge is this big wooden thing with sharp, you know, bones and rocks underneath. And, you know, dill is pretty fragile. You wouldn't run that over dill. you just totally ruin it. No farmer worth his salt would do that. That's dumb. Nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. Dill's it's beaten out with a stick. You've got to be more gentle with it. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he doesn't thresh it forever. So where does all this wisdom come from to know how to farm? It comes from the Lord of hosts because he's wonderful in in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So this is like hopelessly obscure at first, but it's actually really simple and really applicable. The bottom line is verse 29, that God is wonderful in wisdom. And there's these two agricultural images that make the point really powerfully. So you have this humble, ordinary farmer. He He knows something, even though he's humble and kind of salt of the earth. He knows that you don't plow forever. You don't cause upheaval and breaking and turning forever. Plowing leads to sowing. That's why you do it. Who taught him that? God did. Here's the point God sometimes plows up our lives, and He causes upheaval and dislocation and pain. But it doesn't last forever he knows what he's doing. He's excellent in wisdom, wonderful in counsel. He's plowing us up at times so that he can seed something good and bear an abundant harvest in and through our lives. He wants to change us. He wants to bear good fruit through our lives. Verse 27 to 29, different crops get different treatment. So this simple farmer, he's not a rocket scientist, he's not a brain surgeon, but he knows what he's doing. He knows what tool is appropriate to what crop. And just as that farmer knows which method and how much force to use, God knows which method and how much for each of us to get our attention and to grow what he wants to grow in our lives. So we need to trust him and yield to him, not kick against him and shake our fist at him as the potter. What are you doing? His ways are measured and wise. They're not brutal and careless. So here's the point. Why do we oftentimes stick our fingers in our ears and say, blah, blah, blah? Because we're angry. Because we we might not be honest with ourselves enough to say it, But we are smoldering down deep because of what God is doing in our lives, or not doing and allowed to happen, and we're just angry with Him, and He doesn't know what He's doing. If I was God, well, thankfully, we're not God. We need to know the character of God. He's good. Yes, it really hurts when He turns up the soil, but He does it on purpose. He knows what he's doing. He wants to bear good fruit in your life. He knows just how much force to use. You got to trust him. Don't get angry with him. Stick your fingers in your ears. Listen to him. Know his methods, his ways. They're measured and wise. So if you're honest deep down, are you suspicious of the goodness of God? Is there anger and disappointment and distrust smoldering deep down? I think I think this happens more often than we realize. Our hearts react. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Why? I mean, do you ever seriously? Who, who are you saying that to? When you say seriously, to yourself? You talking to yourself? No. You are kind of, but come on, throw me a bone. When we suffer, go through trials, face the threats, when the Lord plows up our life, bringing his discipline and correction, how many times, how many times is it going to take for us to see it in the lives of other people? We've seen it happen in other people's lives. How God's just shaken them up, but he did it for good purposes, and we saw those. How many times is it going to happen in our lives? And then in hindsight, he He shows us The wisdom of his ways, even though it was painful. How many times until we believe that he knows what he's doing? He's up to something good. He wants to sow in good seed into good soil so that it really grows. And he's got to break up the soil for it to take deep root. We can trust him. So listen to William Cooper. He wrote a famous poem. It turned into a hymn. It's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. This guy struggled with depression and despondency, he tried to take his life a few times. John Newton actually took care of him, you know, the old slave trader, Amazing Grace. He wrote this poem, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy. And will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet Will be the flower. That very poem is testimony to the truth of this passage. Because the only way that a guy like that wrote a poem like that is by really spending some time in the valley and the Lord proving that he had purposes for it. I said he tried to commit suicide several times. He's wonderful in counsel, excellent in wisdom, so do not scoff but listen and receive his word especially the precious cornerstone who came to rebuild the world. So we should come to expect that we might not always understand what he's doing, but we should come to expect that he's up to something good, whatever he's doing. After all, this is the same God who came in weakness and died in weakness, whose death looked like a defeat, and he wrought the most powerful victory that the world has ever known. This is the God who willingly entered the world under a cloud of shame. How else do virgins get pregnant? Hmm. Hmm. Tisk, tisk. Who lived as a poor peasant with nowhere to lay his head. He died naked, tacked to a tree on a public thoroughfare, and by so doing revealed the greatest glory that this world has ever seen or known. So he is wonderful in counsel. In fact, his name is Wonderful Counselor. He's Excellent in wisdom. We can trust him. Only those who are drunk or blind will miss it. Let's pray. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them trusting in me will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Oh God, I pray that you would please help each and every one of us to build our house on the rock. Thank you for laying this precious cornerstone, this sure foundation that is Jesus. Thank you that we can be pulled out of the quicksand of trying to save ourselves and we can be placed on the rock so remind us of that help us not to listen to any other word that would compete with or contradict your word and I pray that we would be thrilled with the crown that is ours, not because of what we've done, but because what because of what Jesus has done and your grace in our lives. We pray it in his name. Amen.